Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. It's been a full year. A year, baby. <laughs> and I'm going to be completely honest. Um, I didn't think we'd make it this far. Well, I did. <laughs> I, wrong was I. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It doesn't feel like a full year has passed. Yeah, it has. It feels like no time has passed, but also it feels like we've done so much. <laughs> Does that make sense to anyone? Because it um, also makes sense to me. Yeah. So that's where we're at. But apparently this one's a big one. Yeah. To take down for the one year. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that it was, this was going to be our, like our year episode. Cause tech, I think technically the day we're recording, which is Sunday is our one year, but like when it comes out, it'll be like, you know, the for like our whole year, you know? Yeah. But I thought that we, we've skipped a couple weeks. So this is technically 52. Yeah. So not exactly the year, but we'll make it the year. Yeah. Listen, it's been a it's year. It's been a year. Happy year. Damn it. <laughs> stop with the technicalities okay yeah exactly that's what i'm saying but yeah i, I didn't realize that this was going to be our year episode until kind of late into like the week when i was recording or not recording uh researching researching for this episode and i had a completely different story happening and then i was like i need a big one i need yeah. a really big one so that's what i'm doing guys i'm giving you a big one Fair and enough. and uh this is a highly requested story so i hope you, uh, I guess, enjoy listening to it. I don't know. That's, I always feel weird saying that. But... Every time, just enjoy listening to this damn episode. Yeah. God damn it, guys. <laughs> yeah. We're so happy you're here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's jump in. Yeah, let's do it. So this week we're talking about J.C. Lee Dugard. And my sources for this week's episode is there's a really great episode on the Case File podcast, very informative, um, as well as a an article from the Denver Post by Robert Salonga, and then a Diane Sawyer interview with JC herself. So that's where I got my info. Sweet. Let's do it. JC Lee Dugard was born on May 3rd, 1980 in Anaheim, California to a young single mother named Terry Proben. And in September of 1990, JC and her family moved from the Los Angeles County city of Arcadia to South Lake Tahoe, California, because they had vacationed there the year before, and they thought that it was a safer community. It was, it was you know, kind of smaller and much more tight knit and just out of the city a little bit. JC was close to her mother, Terry, and her infant half-sister, Shayna, who was born earlier that year, um, but she didn't know her biological father, and although her mother remarried, JC wasn't very close with her stepfather either. At the time, JC was in the fifth grade looking forward to her last week of school, but was worrying about an upcoming field trip to a water park because she was pretty shy, and she was still the new girl. 
June 10th, 1991 was a Monday and JC's mother, Terry, who worked as a typesetter at a print house had left for work early. She promised JC, who was 11 at the time, that she'd give her a kiss goodbye, but because she was running late, she had forgotten. And JC also remembers that she wanted to ask her mother that day if she could shave her legs for the first time for the water park, but since her mother had already gone to work, she figured she would just ask her when she got home from school. JC put on her favorite all pink outfit for school and then began walking up the hill from her house against traffic to catch the school bus because she was told that was the safe way. And when she was halfway up the hill, a gray car slowly approached her. She thought that the man driving the car would ask for directions because what else would he be doing? And Philip Greg Garrido pulled up, rolled down the window, and JC saw his hand shoot out of the car, and she remembered her whole body felt numb after that. Philip Garrido had tased her with a stun gun, and JC fell back into the bushes, and she said that she had lost control of her bladder at that point before falling unconscious, but she remembers feeling the sharp edges of a pine cone. That's when Garrido's wife, Nancy, pulled JC onto the floor of the back seat of the car and put a blanket over her. Nancy then got into the back seat with JC and weighed her down to the floor using her legs. And JC was in and out of consciousness while in the back seat, and because of the blanket on top of her, she could only hear their muffled voices. As this happened, JC's stepfather, Carl Proben, was in their garage and was watching JC as she walked to the school bus, and he actually saw as the car drove up to JC and got a terrible feeling in his stomach. That's when he heard JC scream and watched as Nancy quickly pulled JC into the car. Oh my god. He just witnessed it, and it just happened like that, and there's nothing he can do. Yeah. He felt in his pocket to see if he had the car keys, but he didn't, so he jumped onto his mountain bike that was just laying in front of him and pedaled as fast and hard as he could to catch up with the car, the whole time screaming at the neighbors to call 911. But he wasn't able to catch up, so he ended up going to the nearest neighbor's house himself and calling 911. He knew that it was a gray Ford car with a man and a woman in the car, but that's all he knew. And immediately, the news of JC's kidnapping sent their little community into a panic. And because they knew she was kidnapped, as it literally happened, everyone sprung into action. Every police resource, including the FBI, came together to try to find JC. And the police interviewed the kids on JC's bus because a few of them had seen the car as well. So they, you know, came onto the bus and they're like, hey kids, can you tell me what you saw? Uh, And JC's mother did several news interviews and begged the kidnappers to bring her home. The kids in JC's class would get together and pray for her to come home, and her picture was plastered everywhere. JC's stepfather Carl helped police draw a composite sketch of the car, which he said was a late 70s or early 80s Ford Granada, and helped them with a sketch of Nancy. He told them that she had jet black hair and olive complexion and was around 35 years old. The entire community was out searching and police went from door to door to gather information. They used helicopters and horses and everything they could to aid in the search for JC. They initially focused their search just to the South Lake Tahoe area, but was later criticized for not setting up roadblocks soon enough. That was a really good description from the father. Like, that's a lot to remember under duress. Yeah, for sure. And leads came in from all over the country, and the police station received a new lead every five minutes. That's how quickly they were coming in. Wow. Also, the show America's Most Wanted kept the search for JC alive as time went on, but we're definitely getting ahead of ourselves. So let's let's go back to the time of the kidnapping. I take that back. Let's go 
to Philip Garrido. Let's talk about him, shall we? Philip Craig Garrido was born in Pittsburgh, California on April 5th, 1951. In his late teens, Philip was, a, was in a motorcycle accident and suffered from a head injury. And what coincided with his recovery from that accident was his start to using LSD and marijuana. And it wasn't long before he started dealing both of those drugs. It was around that time that Philip also started claiming that he could talk to God. So great signs. He sounds stable. Yeah. A few months after finishing high school, he was arrested for possession of those drugs, but he wasn't held for very long and immediately went back to doing those drugs. Philip spent most of his time in a shed on his parents' property that he soundproofed for the purposes of being a rehearsal space because he had a dream of starting a band and making it big. And he'd be in there all day long taking drugs and practicing his bass guitar and masturbating to porn magazines. Productive. Right. And soon after that, he began publicly masturbating. Right. He would go to restaurants. He would do it in arcades and bars. He also started peering through windows and would watch women as they got undressed. And this then escalated to masturbating outside of schools and would sometimes open the door to his car to expose himself to the young girls. Has he not been arrested this entire time? He was arrested for possession of drugs, but they let him go. What about the public nudity that seems to have been going on for quite some time? Like, we've gone from public masturbation to peering into women's windows as you... As they're getting undressed, yeah. And, and then, then the children, yeah. And now we're children. Right, no, it's... None it's of a, this has been... It's a very clear trajectory, and it's just getting worse. I um, understand. Has nobody witnessed or reported this to the police? I guess not. I guess they well. haven't caught him yet. But at the age of 20, he moved to South Lake Tahoe with his first wife, Christine. Philip was violent toward Christine and wanted to have multiple sexual partners, but she didn't. So she started to try to form an escape from him, but she was anxious because he told her that if she ever left him, that he would track her down. And, you know, since he was violent to her, she was like, well, that very well could be... He probably will follow through on that. Yeah, exactly. This dude's crazy. Yes, yeah. And in 1972, Garrido and his friends met a couple of teenage girls at a library and convinced them to come to a party at a nearby motel. There, Garrido drugged and raped one of the 14-year-old girls and was arrested for that, although the charges were dropped after the victim refused to testify. 14. 14. Allegedly, Philip's attorney told the girl that he'd make her look like a slut if she testified against Philip, which scared her off. That's beyond disgusting. Yeah. A child. Who are you if you're that lawyer? It was his attorney? Yeah. Literal scum of the earth. Mm -hmm. And is that not witness intimidation? Like, that is completely illegal. Yeah, that's not legal. Neither is... Well... (laughs) Raping or child rape. Like... uh, No, I know. I'm on board. No, I know. (laughs) In case that wasn't clear. (laughs) I didn't think you weren't. (laughs) Oh my god. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's bad. And, yeah, he uh, should be in jail and his bar license should be revoked. Yeah, I mean, that attorney and also Garrido should be in prison forever. Yep. But that's not what happened, unfortunately. Um, and in 1974, Philip was in a somewhat successful band, but he was high all the time and would obsess over the Bible and God. He also started talking to his bandmates about a small black box of thoughts he had. I don't know exactly what that means, but he said one of these thoughts was that he wanted to abduct a young girl and turn her into his sex slave so that he could be like a Roman emperor. Maybe don't do that. Maybe someone in your friend group 
tell or, someone about this yeah, be like, like this is uh this this man is clearly very unstable and yeah. like highly dangerous and there's so many signs pointing to it but i'm getting it they of like myself. he's really good at bass he's just like is a really good bassist was, was, he's joking that, he's like into really dark jokes <laughs> right Disgusting. so yeah a year later he was kicked out of the band took a whole year took a whole year he must oh. have been a good bassist because jesus christ jesus. and he and christine moved to reno nevada in reno he rented a small warehouse and claimed that he was going to turn that warehouse into a rehearsal space but he was actually getting it ready for something else and he turned this warehouse into like a maze like out of a scary movie and put mattresses up and like soundproofed it because that's his his specialty apparently is soundproofing things and he used it for terrible things um later that year he abducted a 25 year old woman named katie calloway as she was leaving the grocery store he approached her car and asked her for a ride and she agreed since he looked like a normal guy and said that he was going to a certain place and that place was on her way so she's like yeah i guess and in the car, Philip lunged at her, handcuffed her, and put her in the back seat and covered her face with a coat. He then drove her back to Reno, which was like, I'm pretty sure like hours away, to his warehouse and raped Katie. Thankfully, a suspicious police officer saw the warehouse door slightly open and decided to go check it out. Garrido told the officer that he was hanging out with his girlfriend, but she ran toward the police officer and told him what was actually happening. So he was thank, arrested. Thank God that she did that. Like she yeah. had that she had the courage to do that because I know. it would it could easily be that she was paralyzed and just, you know, couldn't have done that. He had her in there for hours. Like it yeah. was like eight hours, I think. So I'm very glad that this random officer just happened to check out this open warehouse. Like very yeah. strange. Fantastic. Yeah. But during this trial, Garrido confessed to having sexual fantasies about children and that this was taking over his life. He pled not guilty and blamed taking acid on a daily basis for four straight years for what he had done. He was sentenced to 50 years in federal prison for kidnapping and another five years to life on state charges of sexual assault. That's a strange sentence. Five years to life. Yeah, I just, when I said that out loud, I was like, that's weird. But that is what, quite a difference. Actually. Yeah, I guess I guess the 50 plus the five and then like 55 to life. That's kind of what I'm making sense of. But yeah. while in prison, Philip got a divorce from Christine. So she didn't leave him. He left her while he was in prison, which I'm like, huh? Wow. Very, very weird. Um. Christine really must have been, like... like yeah, manipulated yeah, to the manipul highest degree. Exactly. That's why I'm like, damn. He was then transferred to a prison in Kansas where, by happenstance, he met Nancy Bocanegra. And she was visiting a relative in the prison who happened to be Garrido's cellmate at the time. And Phil Garrido apparently courted her with romantic letters, and the two got married while he was still in prison on October 19th, 1981. In 1984, Nancy moved from her home in Denver to get an apartment close to the prison. That way they could spend more time together. Garrido only ended up serving just under 11 years because he was, quote, a model prisoner and gave a great interview to the parole board and earned his parole in 1988. Okay. 
So 11 years of 50. Not even. Plus, it was like 10, 10 years and like 11 months. Plus mm -hmm. five to life. Right. And we've decided that 11 years was enough. Apparently. He was really good on his parole hearing. Dude. What does that even mean? What the fuck? <laughs> I don't know. Do we, like, at this point, do we not understand that criminals and psychopaths are extremely good at Conning? acting? Yeah. That's that's exactly yeah. right. It's like, con man has gotten very far for being a con man because he's really good at talking to people and, and fucking with them, you know? Yes. Like, I Correct. mean, he's not a con man, but also he's crazy. Yeah. So, although his parole came with a couple of conditions... He had to live in California with his mother, Pat, maintain steady employment. He was required to submit to searches and regular drug testing, as well as to attend an outpatient drug abuse program and mental health counseling. But there were no restrictions on his contact with children. Not great. So he could be living within, you know, 100 feet of a school. He could live next to a school. Yeah. yeah. Nobody cares. No. Yeah. Katie Calloway had been working as a dealer at a casino nearby, and nobody thought they should tell her that he was getting out of prison early. And one day, Philip Garrido waltzed up to her table, told her that this was his first drink in 11 years, and to have a good day, and he'd be seeing her again. And then he walked away. Oh my god. Yep. An evil fuck. I can't imagine the terror. Yeah. You're just at your job, and I, I don't know, I guess... You can't leave. It's your shift. Nobody thought to tell the woman he raped that he was getting out of prison like 40 years early. Yeah. And then shouldn't she be able to testify that he shouldn't be let out? Like You'd think. You know, there's definitely two sides to every story. Like, I thought that was part of the parole hearing. Yeah. Even if he made his bed extra tight, like that doesn't mean that he should get out of prison. Like, what? Being a model prisoner doesn't mean that he's like good. I, oh, I'm 100%. Uh, we obviously did not understand this concept. <laughs> and he must have made that bed really well. He must have made that bed Jesus. real tight. Goddamn. Katie, after this, contacted his parole officer to find out how this was even possible. And his parole officer described Philip as a sick puppy who was certain to reoffend, but he doubted that Garrido would try anything with Katie again. Okay. So he knows he's going to reoffend. Make that make sense. You know he's going to reoffend, but it won't be It won't be you, Katie. Be you, the person who put him in prison in this predicament in the first place and the person to whom which he probably holds the most resentment. Even though you suffered 8 hours of torture, don't worry, he's not going to come toward you. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yep, logic gone out the window here. Yeah. So now we're going to get back to JC because this was just uh, Philip Greedo's awful past. But now we're in the awful present. June 10th of 1991 was the morning that he and Nancy kidnapped 11-year-old JC Dugard. And in the car, JC was in and out of blacking out. But at one point, she heard Greedo say, I can't believe we got away with it, as he laughed. 120 miles later, the car stopped in front of a small house on a neighborhood street. It was still daytime, and Garrido lifted the blanket over JC and told her that she wouldn't get hurt if she stayed quiet. He then put the blanket back over her and carried her into his house. Once inside the house, he instructed JC to sit on the sofa, and this was the first time that JC got a good look at Philip Garrido. He was 40 years old, 6'4", had light blue eyes, brown thinning hair, and a long nose. 
She was 11, 4, 6, and 80 pounds. He led JC to the bathroom where he took away her pink clothes that she had dressed in that morning, leaving only a small butterfly ring that she would hide from him. He forced her into the shower with him, and this was the first time that JC had ever seen a naked man. After the shower, he put the blanket back over her and walked her into the backyard toward a fence where an opening was covered with a tarp. He had constructed his backyard into two sections that were divided by shrubbery, a tarp, and a fence to conceal the fact that the back section of his backyard even existed. On the walk over there, JC tried to take in as much information as she could using only the sounds around her and what she could feel. She felt the grass under her feet as well as rocks and sticks, and behind the fence was a collection of sheds and, sh- and storage units. He brought her into one of these small sheds that was completely soundproofed, handcuffed her hands behind her back with fuzzy handcuffs, which he told her wouldn't hurt as much, and he said that he'd be back later. As he was leaving, he told her that he had Dobermans outside and they would attack her if she tried to escape. He then closed the soundproof door and then a second door and locked it behind him. Inside the 10 foot by 10 foot shed, there was only one window with bars that was covered by a towel. So she used her teeth to pull the towel aside to try to see where she was. For the rest of the night, JC laid on a makeshift bed that was made for her out of blankets on the floor and drifted in and out of consciousness. At one point, she heard a train and consciously decided that she would remember that because it could possibly help her mother find her. She heard airplanes and lawnmowers, and she kept note of every sound that she heard because it seemed as if this would lead to contact with someone at some point. Smart. She's 11. Yeah, I know. It's incredibly smart. I can't believe. Yeah, she's like counting her steps, like feeling the grass and the rocks and like keeping note of everything. And she's 11. Yeah. That's crazy. Philip Garrido became the only human contact that JC had, and she relied on him for everything. He brought her food, water, let her use the bathroom in a bucket, and over the first week, he was very friendly toward JC and would come into the shed and sit with her and tell her funny stories. JC had no idea what he wanted with her. She had never even heard of sexual abuse. And after the first week, Garrido brought her a milkshake. And at this point, she was getting used to him coming in and out of the shed, and that's all it would be. But this time would be different. This was when the sexual abuse started and would continue almost every day of her captivity. She said she was able to flip a switch and not be present in those moments. And the first time she focused on a small trail of ants that were making their way to the untouched milkshake that was on the ground. Two weeks after JC's abduction, her poster was on almost every tree and fence in Tahoe and neighboring towns. Her family was joined by hundreds of volunteers to pass out flyers, and people all over wore Have You Seen JC buttons. JC's parents said that they would give a $5,000 reward for the safe return of their daughter, and not long after that, two other families put up $10,000 each to contribute to the the award, so it was at a $25,000 reward. They have no idea how far away she is. She was two hours away. I know, and I'm just not getting a good feeling because it's the late 80s, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, clearly the justice system has already failed once, and I have a feeling we're about to fail again and again. And the PDs at this time, and I think even still today, just don't share information well. 
Mm-hmm. So the, the chances that they're going to tell a police department that's two hours away that this is happening, slim to none. Well, I think she was on the news, like, kind of everywhere because she was, like, a young blonde girl with blue eyes who was kidnapped from her bus stop. Like, she... In a small, tight-knit community. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think she was on the news everywhere and she was on America's Most Wanted and her, her mother and stepfather were taking every interview possible. They were doing everything they could behind the scenes, or not even behind the scenes, on the front line like they were they were doing everything they could so it's not that they didn't know about it it's just that no one knew where she was like there there was no signs of anything you know another question part of his parole was that he was living with his mom yep has he abducted her in his mom's house yep so she's living there in the backyard no no no. his mom oh yeah his mom's there is she in on it i or is um, she just so so his, there's, there's no proof that his mom ever knew what was going on, and she's not a very big part of the story at all. So I don't know. That just seems crazy to me. It is. That you have a human being in your backyard and you don't know. Yeah, well, it was I mean, like I... a secret backyard. So like, it's not like you saw it from the back door. Like you had to like kind of... I... I have no idea, but you know, just this, this is a detail that's like... It's a shocking detail. Yeah. It is definitely something to think about, but I don't think she... I mean, nothing ever happened to her. Um, by the end of the story, she's like suffering from dementia and is old and like, you know, so there's oh. there's no there's no proof that she knew, but I don't know if she did, you know? No one does. Yeah. After some time in the shed, Garrido told JC that she, he'd take the handcuffs off of her as long as she promised to be good. And he brought in a small black and white TV. The only channel she had was QVC. You're joking. No. QVC. Yeah, the only thing she had was QVC. And she would fall asleep at night to the sound of jewelry being sold. But she said at least it was talking. At least it was something, you know? Some, like, semblance of a normal. Yeah. She believed it was about a month before Philip moved her into a new building next to the first storage unit that she was in in the middle of the night. He covered her with a blanket again and moved her into what she called the blue building, which was still in this concealed section of Garrido's backyard. And JC kept track of the fact that she took 10 steps from the old room that she was in until she got into the new room. So she's still, you know, keeping track of everything. It had three windows with iron bars that Philip had covered with towels. In the middle of the room, there was a blue couch in front of a TV. He told her that the demon angels he hears let him take her because she was going to help him with his sexual problems. This is a convicted sex offender who is still in the care of doctors. He had an appointment that he attended three days before kidnapping JC and four days after. But he told her that society ignored him and that's why he was able to take her. He told her that she was helping protect other girls from having this happen to them because he had her. What do you say that? It's disgusting. I mean, it's just manipulation and like... it's To the highest degree. And I don't know. That just seems... It's so fucked, but I bet it's so effective because I... It just seems that, that victims will always care about other people more than themselves. Of course. And she was 11. And, and yeah. in the interview with Diane Sawyer, she was like, did you believe that? And she's like, yeah, I did. It's just so sad. And also, I mean, she was battling with the thoughts of maybe my family will forget about me. Maybe they don't actually care that I'm gone. Maybe their life is better without me. She was so lonely and she was fed so many lies from Philip Garrido that she didn't even, like she she loved her mom and she, you know, 
would actually look at the moon every single night because she and her mom shared this thing where they would like sit on the porch and like debate about which moon was the better moon and her mom liked the crescent moon and JC liked the full moon. So she would look at the moon to like talk to her mom while she was in captivity. But she at the same time was battling this this idea of they are better off without me. You know, now she, now my mom only has to take care of one kid and not two. So it's easier for her. And she didn't have any like access to the news or anything. So she didn't see her parents working as hard as they were to get her back. It was just, it was hell every day for her. Beyond hell. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It really is. This was when he would stay with her for days at a time doing what he called going on runs, which was the time after he would do crank, which was a cheaper, less pure version of meth. And he'd stay up for one to three days at a time and JC was expected to be up with him doing whatever he wanted. These runs would happen at least once a week for years. And usually they would end up with Garrido sobbing and begging JC's forgiveness, which would then be followed by threats, like he would sell her to someone who would keep her in a cage if she cried too much. Which terrified her because she talks so much about how this was horrible and she hated every second of every day, but at least it was an evil that she knew. If he sold her to someone else, then that was the unknown. So she didn't want that to happen. So these threats were very real and very scary to her. Yeah, if she, he, he's going to make her believe that it could be worse. Yeah, of course. But Jesus Christ, could it, hard to imagine. Yeah. What could be worse? Yeah. Seven months after her kidnapping, Jay-Z's mother was still doing everything she could to bring her home. She and her husband took every opportunity to do an interview on TV, and she even quit her job to join a group of volunteers who were sending out flyers. And actually, for a time, focus shifted to her husband, Carl. Some of his in-laws hired private investigators to look into him, and had to, he had to go through four FBI-administered lie detector tests. So the police and the FBI were looking at him because he was the one that saw it. And, you know, sometimes it's someone in the family. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. Terry, yeah, one of those things? You're going to make him go through four lie detector tests? The man jumped on a bike and, like, went after her. No, of course. And, I mean, knowing what we know, like, of course, it's like, ah, oh, poor guy. But also, if they have nothing to go off of, they got to they gotta look into everyone, you know? Yeah, I mean, I get it, but... God, that sucks for It him. does. It really sucks. I can't sucks. even imagine going through that. Yeah. And at the same time, Terry and Carl's relationship also became strained because she would lash out on him and accuse him of not doing everything he could have to get her back. I mean, I can't blame her, but yeah, I mean, he really did everything. It's just tragedy. It's just tragic, you know? Yeah. Terry almost found comfort in the fact that there was a woman involved in JC's kidnapping because she thought maybe this woman had lost her own child and was caring for JC as her own. Yeah, what is happening with her? With Nancy? During this entire period. Yeah, actually, we're literally going to get into it right now. <laughs> so okay. it was around this time, around seven months into her kidnapping, that JC was introduced to a new person, Nancy Garrido. Philip had talked about Nancy with JC and told her that he wanted she and Nancy to become friends. And he told her that Nancy was jealous because he spent all of his time with her, but he also explained that Nancy didn't like sex, so she was also helping Nancy. What in the fuck? When Nancy came into the room, she came with a purple bear, a Barbie doll, and chocolate milk. And JC wanted Nancy to like her so much because she thought that if she didn't like her, she would get in trouble. 
and when she was alone, she'd make furniture for her Barbies out of cartons of the chocolate milk because she's still a child. Um, Nancy would start bringing JC meals and would allow her to watch TV as long as it was quiet. And after a year of Nancy being involved in JC's captivity, the Garritos began to spend more time with JC in her shed as what they called a family. God, I want to puke. Yeah, but Nancy Garrido was just as evil as her husband. She and Philip would go to children's playgrounds and film children. Philip taught her a way to film them without being caught. And she'd film him playing guitar and singing, but in reality, she would zoom in on the little girls playing on the swings behind him. And the police have these videos and she was enthusiastically helping him. You can hear her talking in the videos. He would ask her, you got me good? Meaning like, am I in the frame, whatever? And she would point the camera at the children and be like, yeah, I got you really good. Like she was enthusiastic about helping her her husband be a pedophile. Like it was disgusting. How do you get there? I don't know. Like what... What is your, why do you want to do that? I mean, it's it's probably a good thing that we don't understand, but yeah. like, how do you get there? I don't get it. I like, don't. What happened to you? Or like, what is the psychology? Like, I just don't understand at all. But this is definitely a recurring theme. Like, I've definitely heard of this type of arrangement before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just boggles my mind. I know. How like any woman would want to do that. Yeah. And, and not that, her filming children was worse than her helping him kidnap a child to be his like slave but it's just she was it's clear that she was not like you know a battered woman who was like scared of him you know she was fully into it yeah she was fully helping her husband be a pedophile in every sense which is disgusting so she was just as responsible for this and they had over 300 videos like this But like Philip, Nancy would also be very cruel to JC because she was extremely jealous that her husband was spending all of his time with JC as if she wanted that, you know? Like, you're being cruel to this child because your husband is abusing her. She worked during the day as an aide in a nursing home, but when Philip mysteriously disappeared for a month, she took the role of JC's jailer. She told JC that Philip was on an island with a friend, but in reality, in March of 1993, he was sent back to prison for failing a drug test. Every night, Nancy would lock herself into the room with JC and make her watch scary movies, and then in the morning, she'd leave again and lock the door behind her. During this time, Nancy would also tell JC that she was so sorry for what they had done to her and cry. She would say that she wished that Philip got a migraine on the day that he wanted to kidnap JC so that he wouldn't have been able to go through with it. Yeah, right, bitch. Yeah, like... Please. I know. You could let her go at any moment. Yeah, exactly. You could call the authorities at any moment. Mm -hmm. You could end it. Mm -hmm. It's all in your hands. Yeah. So just save me this bullshit lip service. Yeah. But on the 29th of April, Philip was released from prison and put into home confinement supervision and ordered to report to a halfway house in Oakland a day later. The U.S. Parole Commission gave him 120 days of supervision and electronic monitoring. When Philip was released from prison for Katie Calloway's abduction and rape, he was actually under two separate paroles one from Nevada and one from federal parole. And when he broke parole and went back to prison for a month, the parole board of Nevada was never informed. 
How? I don't know. But had they been informed of this, they could have sent him back to a state prison to finish out his sentence. So, hold on. He's gone for a month in federal prison? Excuse me. He's gone for a month in federal prison? Yep. And he just didn't show up to any of his parole hearings because he's in prison. Right. And the Nevada parole didn't pick up on that? Like, how often are his parole hearings or like how often are his checkups are they not once a month at least i think because the federal parole was happening he was getting check-ins from like them and because he wasn't physically in nevada i think maybe they were a little bit more removed but that changes like later on but there was a lot of oversight like there was a lot of just not Uh, caring and yeah and a lot of fuck-ups that happened um and this is just the beginning so okay yeah great yep so yeah had nevada known that they sent him to prison they could have you know sent him to a state prison and put him away to finish out his term that was supposed to be 50 50 55 years years. yeah but they didn't know that so they didn't send him to prison did they ever find that out like uh, later but not not when it was important (laughs) and this 120 days of quote-unquote supervision did not mean like jack shit like he could do anything literally he kidnapped a kid and held her in a backyard and nobody knew about it and he was getting checkups from parole officers like regularly so <laughs> the, we're, we're gonna get into it a little bit more later but he's also like doing meth every week yeah i don't know how he got away with the drug tests too because i think maybe he was doing a lot of meth <laughs> yeah maybe it gets out of your system pretty quickly maybe but like yeah, that's mind-boggling. I don't no, understand. I know. I know. He and Nancy would use JC's love of animals to manipulate her by giving her kittens, and then they would disappear during usually one of Philip's runs. JC had a couple of kittens, but one of them she named Eclipse, and she loved her so much that she asked for a diary. That way she could write about her kitten. And she wrote in her diary about how one night she was crying and and Eclipse saw her and sat by her, which made her feel better. And she said she loved this cat more than her own life. And she was so happy that the Garritos spent $200 to get her this kitten, because apparently they had told her that they spent $200 as if it was like, you should be so grateful. But again, one day Eclipse vanished as well. After 34 months, or almost three years, that had passed since JC's kidnapping, the Garritos gave her a cooked meal for the first time. What have they been feeding her? Not things that are cooked. It was Easter of 1994, and they gave her corned beef and cabbage. The Garritos were with her in the shed and watching the Ten Commandments on TV when they told her that they think JC was four and a half months pregnant. She was 13 years old. She's pregnant? Yep. By August of 1994, JC was 14 years old and would talk to the baby growing inside her. And going to the hospital wasn't an option, so she would watch a TV show about babies that Philip told her about, and he said that he'd read up on how to give birth to a baby. Later in August, one day while she was alone watching Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, she felt a sharp pain. And since she was 14 and the only thing she knew about babies was from a TV show, she didn't know that this was a contraction and she was in labor. And she would be by herself for hours before the Greedos came into the shed and gave her codeine. She would be in labor for another 12 hours and had complications with her birth. The baby had the umbilical cord wrapped around its neck, and Philip Garrido had to reach inside of her and unwrap the cord from the baby's neck because he said he had seen it on a medical show he watched after the baby came out. 
So it's a miracle that that baby came out alive. But Jesus Christ, like, wow, it's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and when JC had her baby, she felt like she wasn't alone anymore. And she said that she would never let anything happen to her. After JC gave birth, she was terrified that Philip would make her give up her child, but he didn't. And he held the baby in a chair in the room and prayed over her and promised that he would never hurt her because he's such a good guy. Right. Some reports state that one way Philip got Nancy to participate in the abduction was by telling her that since she couldn't have children of her own, they'd get a young girl to have a child for them. That was never proven, and Nancy did everything he told her to do anyway, so she's, you know, just a monster and a monster and probably didn't need much convincing, but that is something that people speculated. And they named JC's baby Angel, and even though Philip chose the name, JC said that she loved it. Taking care of Angel was extremely tough considering she had to do it on her own from this locked shed and all she had to learn about childcare was from TV shows. But she made the best of it and all the while trying to keep Philip from lashing out and having extreme mood swings. He was still, you know, abusing her and giving her long lectures about the Bible and how he was the chosen one and he continued to make her listen to the quote-unquote voices in the walls with a machine that he built out of plastic cups. What? Can you say that again? Sure. He continued to make her listen to the voices in the walls with a machine that he built out of plastic cups. Voices in the walls? Mm-hmm. He hears voices. Oh, he hears voices. Yes. And he's like, you can hear the voices too with this machine that I built out of plastic cups. The logic tracks here. Yeah, literally. So in 1977, when JC was 17, she gave birth again in the backyard. This was three years later. Angel was now three, and JC was teaching her the ABCs while watching Sesame Street. When Philip discovered that she was pregnant again, he built her a new room with a bunk bed for her and Angel. And this was also the first time since her abduction that JC was allowed in the backyard. Philip secured the eight-foot fence and set up a tent for her and Angel. And it was the first time that she had seen the sun in five years. The outside and in the tent was all filled with trash and just random stuff, but JC was able to plant some flowers outside and learned that she loved to garden. So she is like really making the most out of the little things. Like she really just found meaning in her like daily life, which is incredible. And I can't, I can't even begin to understand how she did that or what it took. Like, ugh. I don't know, this is fucked, but I also wonder, like, if what kept her going was her kids. Well, yeah, definitely. She and loved... she's making the most of these, like, little gestures. Yeah, she loved her kids, and she also, like, had a journal that she would write right. things that she oh wanted to God. do in the future. What? I can't imagine reading that journal. Oh, yeah. It's... She gets found. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's Diane Sawyer it's a... goes through a couple of things that she talks about, and, like, how she, like, wants to, you know, be with her mom and, like, ride in a hot air balloon, and, like, how she's gonna open up a, a shelter for homeless people and like all this she just has so many dreams and like what she's gonna do in the future and like it's so much and not only that but philip found this journal once and saw that she was signing every entry with jc with like a little heart and a, like on a string like a balloon and he made her rip it out he made her rip out her name because he didn't want her using her name so she was never allowed to use her name so he completely took away her identity. This is an absolute horror. 
I know. Does it continue to get worse? Like, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, like it's not good. It's like a bottomless pit of hell. Yeah, and you guys suggested it. Y'all like fucked up shit. Listen, I, I right get. Now. I was I was talking about this the other day. I get the obsession with true crime. Like I am very into true crime, so I get it. But like telling these stories, man, it, it's hard. It's a little hard. Yeah. Not to be like, hey, what was me? I'm I'm so. And my life is so hard right now. In the middle of this fucking story, I take it back. My life's not hard. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Love my thought process. Yeah, just make you put it live. into perspective, right? Yeah, literally. Um, I'm like, it's so hard yeah. to tell her story. Meanwhile, I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not as into true crime as you, but <laughs> well, it's uh, still yeah, it's it's messed up. Yeah, continue. Let's continue. <laughs> I think that's enough about that. It was also around this time that Philip started a printing company called Printing for Less to make some extra money for the second baby that was coming. And he built up actually a decent client base in Antioch, which is where his house was. I don't know if I, if I said that. Um, and in neighboring towns as well. And his clients reported that he seemed very professional uh, and fast with his delivery at first. He seemed professional and normal. That quickly really? unraveled, but <laughs> yes, in, wow, in the beginning. Even, even managed the illusion. Mm -hmm. for some period of time yeah there was one instance where one of his clients requested a very large order of cards that he had placed on one day and then the next day he received that like really big order and he made a joke saying do you have slaves working for you and little did he know that jc was the designer of his cards you're joking nope wow that comment was not going to age well yeah it's one of those like no nah. Not good. I just offhand, I mean, how could he know? No, of course, but still. <laughs> She's helping him. Yeah. JC's second daughter was born in November of 1997, and again, Philip delivered this baby and named her Starlet. Around this time, Nancy quit her job to help JC raise the children, and Philip told her that she felt like an outsider on their family, meaning Nancy, and it would be helpful if Nancy stepped into the mom role meaning JC's children would be told that JC was their sister and that Nancy was their mother and Philip was their father. And JC agreed because what choice did she really have? I'm sure she agreed, you know, yeah. with words. Right. But... Yeah. And Philip made her change her name as well. And JC chose the name Alyssa. But JC wouldn't call Nancy mom. She refused because she had a mother and she wasn't going to take that place. So at least she put her foot down on that, you know? Yeah, something. I guess. In 1998, Terry moved from South Lake Tahoe to Southern California to live with her sister, Tina. There, she donated money and helped launch the Fighting Chance program, and it was a program that taught children how to fight back if they were ever being abducted and began implementing in schools for children from fourth to sixth grade. It taught children things like how to get out of a, the trunk of a car by pulling electrical wires or kicking the taillight out, and they'd even train in like special cars. 3,500 children went through this program, and it's believed to have stopped the abduction of at least three, which is amazing. Is huge, you know? Hugely successful. Yeah. But what the fuck? I know. Like one in every 1,000 children will get abducted. I mean, supposedly, I don't know. That's a scary statistic, but I mean, it's a small sample, but Jesus Christ. I know when I read that why, too, I was like, holy shit. Why did we not get that? I did not have to do that shit. I mean, I was told, I remember I was told that there was that glow in the dark pole thing uh -huh. on all the car trunks trunks. Yeah. But I remember thinking like, that's kind of dumb 
why would the person kidnapping you not just cut it off before they do it? So, I mean, it's a nice thought, but I do remember my parents telling me that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they, I don't remember. Uh, that piece of information stuck with me for some reason. Yeah. I was like, if I ever got to do this, I'm pulling that shit and jumping. Yeah, I feel like I remember in elementary school doing a thing where we had to like do something in a car. But I, I'm pretty sure it was something to do with fire. Yeah. I don't think it was this program because, it, you know, only 3,500 children went through this specific program, I think. But it's it's incredible that it happened and that yeah. it helped anyone, you know? Yeah. Sounds pretty damn effective. Yeah. So for the seven years she lived in South Lake Tahoe without JC, she never stopped waiting for her daughter and left her room completely untouched because she was just waiting for her daughter to come home. She never celebrated Christmas and she'd send Carl away with their younger daughter for the week and she would just stay at home and cry. 1998 was the year that JC would have graduated high school and a photo of her was included in the class yearbook with a quote that said, even though you might not be walking down this graduation aisle, you'll always be walking with us in our hearts, which hurts my heart. Um, you good? I'm crying. I know. It's okay. Uh. It's not okay. It's really messy and fucked up. On March 9th, 1999, Philip was officially discharged from his federal parole and received a certificate of early termination from the U.S. Department of Justice. This certificate congratulated him on his good behavior, but he was still on parole in Nevada, so they transferred their parole to California since that's where he was living. So he still has backup parole, thankfully, But Philip complained about this because he believed he shouldn't have any parole since he was off federal parole and claimed that he had been getting an attorney to fight this since it was causing him emotional distress. Wow, he's a comedian now, too. Yeah, right. (laughs) So what did he say exactly? He said he was getting an attorney to fight this parole because it was causing him emotional distress. (laughs) Okay. But before that, like, they switched him to Nevada. How much time has he served on, under parole? I mean, since he got out of prison until now. I don't know how many years, but, I mean, it wasn't doing much. Yeah, I know, but what did they say when they released him? It was, like, good behavior? Yeah, congratulations on your good behavior. Now you're not on federal parole. But then Nevada was like, he's he's still on our parole. I mean, thank God. Because but, that's where yeah. the that's where the offense took place. So. Yeah, well, you know, he hasn't exactly been behaving. That's an understatement. Um, on multiple occasions, parole officers would come into Philip's home to look around for anything, give him a drug test, and then leave. They never looked hard enough to find JC or her two daughters in a shed in the backyard. On one occasion, JC was even in the house with one of these parole visits. They had a casual exchange, meaning JC and the parole officer. He looked around, gave Philip a drug test, and then left. How did they do that? Who did he think she was? Yeah, exactly. You're just going to let a convicted sex offender have a young girl in his house and not question it? A convicted pedophile and rapist Mm -hmm. has a child. Well, she wasn't a child at the time. Was she 18 already? She was 17 when she had her second daughter, which was in 1997. I mean, regardless, a young, very young woman or girl, I don't know. She was at least 18, maybe 19, 20 even. At this point, she was not a child. Didn't care to ask why she was there? Like, should've. this is just... He should've. Insanely. Exactly. Like, this how, This whole thing is infuriating. How brazen of him, too. Oh, Philip? Yeah. The gall. I know. I know. At this point, he's like, well, he's she's not like going to say anything. He's just, her. Yeah. God, I wish she would have said something. I know, but she was so terrified. 
I can't, I mean, obviously, it, after, what, nine years? More? More. But yeah. you just really wish that she would have... Of course, but I mean, at this point, it wasn't physical shackles, it was mental. Oh, it was all It was mental and emotional shackles. Yeah. 60 times, parole officers came to the house, and not one of them questioned anything. Nor did they discover the secret backyard, or the electricity that was running to the secret backyard, or anything. Nobody looked hard enough, which is absurd to me. Yeah. 60. So for the next five months, he didn't have any supervision and he'd take the girls out more freely. He made JC dye her hair and cut it short, but at this point she looked so different than what she did when she was abducted that Philip and Nancy weren't very worried about anyone discovering who she actually was. They went to the beach. JC got her nails done with Nancy. They went to a carnival, Halloween parties, but running wasn't something JC thought she could do. The psychological hold he had on her was so strong that she didn't even believe she could leave. At that point, the evil she knew felt safer than the unknown of the outside. She was constantly being told that the outside was extremely dangerous and her daughters would be hurt if she was out there. So since he hasn't hurt her daughters or abused her daughters the way he did her, she's thinking, at least I can protect them here. You know, because that's all she knows. She was 11. It's crazy. I know. No words. I know. I mean, I just keep repeating myself because Jesus, like, ugh. That year, Philip also connected the internet, which allowed JC to help with his printing business as well as educate her daughters. She made them worksheets and put them on a schedule that mimicked what they would have in a school. From 10 to 2 p.m., they studied math, spelling, reading, social studies, and science. Philip told her that the computer kept track of everything she did, so if she tried to reach out to anyone or did anything, he would know. So even though all she thought about was her mother, she never did anything. She would keep herself going by making lists of her dreams of the future, like we talked about. And she gave her life meaning and always held on to her memories of her mother and the time before, and she always kept hope. If uh, only she knew what incognito mode was. Yeah, but it was also... I mean, she... 1999. I so. mean, yeah, she has no idea what the internet is, but, yeah, I mean, she could have, I don't know, sent a message. Like, she was fully on the internet. She was fully out in the world. She could yeah, have no. run. She could have done a lot of things, but she didn't feel like she could. And it's, yeah, like, no. I know you're not implying that it's her fault, but, like, Absolutely it's just not. it's just such a shame. I mean, yeah, I know. It's just, she's, it's like she's right there. I know. You just want to reach out and, like, help just... so bad, but pull her through I know, I know. In December of 1999, a seven-year-old was kidnapped from a bus stop 30 miles west of Antioch. A child safety advocate was appointed as the search team leader and went to Philip's printing company to update the children's safety fact sheet. And when she got there, Philip said that she should add to the sheet that children should never walk to the bus stop alone because they're no match for an adult. Okay. Weirdly specific, Philip. Yeah. Almost like you know that to be true. I mean, mm. obviously that's kind of, you'd think about and it. And but... what did she say to that? Nothing. She said, okay, thank you. And she left. She didn't know. This is insane. So he's printing flyers for other missing children. Yeah. Uh-huh. In 2000, Philip started taking medication for schizophrenia and started at attracting attention for his strange behaviors. And in January of 2001, he got reevaluated by a new parole agent and was deemed a low-risk offender and got even less supervision. 
Great. Just what he needs. Right. In 2005, Philip announced that he was going to give up masturbation to completely devote himself to religion. He claimed he found the cure to schizophrenia by inventing a black box that allowed him to hear the voices of angels. And in 2006, tried gathering funds to start a church in his backyard. That year, a neighbor called 911 because they had seen young girls in his backyard and knew Philip was a sex offender. Philip and the girls had been living out of these tents in his backyard for a while, and the neighbor called the police and told them that he was a sex offender and a religious fanatic that had girls living in tents in his backyard. An officer went to the house to investigate, but only made it as far as his front yard. Apparently, after asking Philip a few questions, he didn't feel the need to investigate any further. Who is that cop? Job lost. Hopefully. Job done. How How stupid can you be? Stupid, negligent. Huh? Like, you have to assume any call that you get, the worst of people. You get you, you get a call, pep- but, like, it, the fact that he's a sex offender alone. He is a convicted rapist. And he is a pedophile. We've seen young girls in his backyard. He was on parole for years. I mean, with nothing happening. He should be in jail. One, literally one Google search or one police scanner search, whatever the fuck, of this man's name would have showed this police officer who he was and what he was convicted of. The, the, I mean, the call from the neighbor alone being like, this is a sex offender with children in his backyard should have been enough. But if he took five seconds to do his job even slightly better, like this could have been over. It's just so infuriating to me that nobody gave even a second thought, especially this guy. Like the parole officers are terrible and that's a problem in itself that they weren't searching hard enough. But this officer, are you fucking kidding me? It's a sex offender with children in his backyard. You're not even going to go in the backyard. You're not even going to look in the backyard. You had one job. Yeah, literally. I mean, I'm heated. (sighs) Let's keep going. In 2008, Jessica's law was passed to monitor sex offenders. So Philip had to wear an electronic ankle bracelet that tracked everywhere he went because of this new law. However, since he was listed as a low-risk sex offender, he was put on a passive GPS tracking system, which meant all he needed was permission to travel further than 25 miles outside of his home. But he broke this rule numerous times and nothing happened. So not even that was real. Later that month, Philip registered his church that he, I guess, now has called God's Desire. And that year, Philip's mother, Pat, became really ill and she was suffering from dementia and JC would come into the main house to take care of her a lot. It's not known if Pat ever knew about JC, like we talked about earlier, but they were staying in her house. So, little sus. Well, she has dementia, she... That's true, but I don't think she had dementia the whole time, you know? That's also true. And JC was in and out of the house a lot, so the fuck. Anyway, on Monday, August 24th, uh, 2009, Lisa Campbell, who was a special events manager with the UC Berkeley Police Department, was told that there was a man in the lobby of Sprout Hall who wanted to talk to her about an event that he wanted to hold on campus. This was Philip, if you didn't knew that. (laughs) We know that. She didn't pick that up. She didn't pick it up. It's Philip. Uh, So she approached Philip, who was with JC's daughters, and while they were talking, he became very agitated. She took down his name and told him to come back the following day at 2 p.m. And when she asked for the exact nature of the lecture he wanted to hold, he told her it was called God's Desire, and then he left. She got a really uneasy feeling about this interaction, 
and she noticed that he seemed very unstable, and these children were almost non-responsive and didn't have the energy of a normal child. She also thought how odd it was that they weren't even in school, and it was the middle of the day, and school was in session. The older girl, the entire time she was there, just stared up at the ceiling the entire time and didn't even make eye contact one time. So these children were acting very weird. They looked really pale, and she just got a really bad feeling about the whole interaction, thankfully. Yes. Praise her intuition. Yeah. We love women's intuition. Lisa had worked with domestic violence and child welfare issues as a police officer and knew the signs to look out for, and these girls were showing a lot of them. So she went to her captain and told him about her concerns, and he authorized her to pursue the issue. Thank God. I was like, if he dismisses this. Yeah. I swear to God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the next day, Lisa contacted Allie Jacobs, who was another officer at with the UC Berkeley Police Department. Um, she wanted Allie to join her in the meeting with Philip to see if she could get a good read on him. So they ran his name through the police computer and found that he was a former federal parolee and was convicted of rape and kidnapping in 1976. So literally one search. Like, yep. That's and it. The, the parole officer was like, yeah, I'll reoffend, but you know, we'll probably catch him, right? But it'll be fine. We'll just get him yeah, after. It'll be fine. <sighs> I it'll be fine. I know. Uh, at 2.30 p.m., Philip walked into Lisa's office with the girls once again, and they asked him what they could do for him. He started rambling about a book he had written about schizophrenia and never really made any points or had any requests. He was just rambling. Lisa kept asking why he was there to kind of keep him distracted while Allie tried talking to the girls. At one point, Philip said that years ago, he was convicted of kidnapping and rape. And although the two knew that already, they were still shocked that he came out and said it just out of nowhere. And they looked at the girls as soon as he said that, and they didn't have any reaction. So that was odd as well. Philip told them that he was better now since he had found God. And Allie interrupted his rambling and asked about the girls. And Philip told them that they were his daughters and that they were homeschooled. Allie noticed that they had his eyes, but that they were extremely pale. And other than finding out that they had an older sister, she didn't get much more information about the situation. So these officers didn't know what to do as he left. So they told Philip to forward his book to their supervisor. And Philip excitedly agreed because, you know, he just is rambling about this book that he wrote and, you know, whatever. So he wants to spread the good word of whatever. They were like, send your book and we'll see what we can do kind of thing. And as he was leaving, he said that he was so proud of his girls because they didn't know any curse words and they didn't know anything bad about the world. Very weird. Lisa and Allie wanted to call CPS, but they didn't have anything real to report. So they decided to call his parole officer, Eddie Santos, to see if he knew what was going on. He didn't answer right away, so they left him a message. And later that day, when Eddie heard the message, he went to go check on Philip. So at 6 p.m., he and another officer knocked on Philip's door. When Philip answered, they put him in handcuffs to search his home and escorted him into the front yard. The other officer stayed outside with Philip while Eddie Santos went inside to talk with Nancy and Pat, but he didn't see anybody else. They took Philip to the parole office 25 miles away to question him about the two girls. He told them that the two girls were his brother Ron's daughters and that he had already picked them up from his house. Nancy and JC were told that if something like this happened, they should call his attorney immediately and go to like a bail bondsman. But they decided that it would be best to wait for his call to tell them what to do. To their surprise, he returned home only a couple hours later. Eddie told him to return to the office the next morning. So he's like, 
go home. Which also is like, what are they asking? What the fuck? I don't know. Why does he keep getting to go home? Like, what's happening? JC cried tears of relief because they relied on him for everything. So this meant that she would eat, but also tears of anger because she felt like nobody even cared to look for her or even cared to know that she was there. She's not wrong. No, she's not. I mean, it's, it's like hopeless. She's like, nobody cares about me. Philip had told her that the angels had allowed him to kidnap her. And now the angels had let him go. Early the next morning, August 26th, 2009, Eddie called Allie again for her to describe the meeting in detail that she and Lisa had with Philip on the university campus. When she told Eddie about his daughters, he said Philip didn't have any kids and Allie informed him that they looked like him and they were calling him daddy. So they were his kids. That yeah, morning- so he lied. Yeah. <laughs> That morning, like, please put that together. <laughs> right. That morning, as Philip got ready to go to the parole office, he decided he was going to take everyone to quote unquote set the record straight, meaning Nancy, JC, and their daughters. Which, what's, yep. what thoughts are going through your head, yeah. sir? But also, thank you for doing that. Like, what? I don't know. I mean, he's already been quite brazen. That's he's true. Showing them off. So I don't know why he would think they would. That's true. Um, in the car on the way, JC asked what she should say because she was terrified. And he told her to tell them that the girls were her daughters and she allowed him to have kids with her knowing that he was a sex offender. And if they asked her anything else, she should request a lawyer. They arrived to the parole office at 8.10 that morning and Eddie decided to have Philip wait in the lobby while he took JC, Nancy, and the girls to a conference room. As Eddie led them away, JC looked back at Philip and he winked at her as they went into the room. In the room, Eddie really questioned JC the most. She gave him all the information that Philip had fed her. Her name was Alyssa Franson, which was the last name of Pat's hus second husband. She was the mother of the girls. She occasionally lived with Nancy and Philip, but the other times she was with relatives. And she was aware that Philip was a sex offender and she gave Philip permission to go to the University of California with her daughters. So Eddie asked her for an ID, but she told him that she had left him at home, left it at home. JC asked what was happening and if she needed a lawyer, but he said he was just following up because of what happened at the university. He then led them out of the room and questioned Philip. But when Eddie asked what the nature of their relationship was and who Alyssa was to these girls, Philip told him that they were all sisters and his brother Ron was the father of the children. So conflicting stories. Eddie then went okay, out. Okay, but like conflicting stories. But he told her. I know. What to say? Exactly. So uh, he's really. He's losing it. Thankfully. Yeah. Eddie then went outside with another officer to search for JC again, like out to their car. And when she saw them approaching, she got nervous and asked Nancy what she should say. And Nancy told her to tell them that she was a distant relative of Philip's mother. The second agent stayed with Nancy and the two girls while Eddie took JC to the side. And he immediately told her that she had been lying to him and she wasn't the mother of those kids. But she told him that she gave birth to both of those girls, so she was their mother. And Eddie told her what Philip had said, which scared her because she didn't know what to do. So she made up another version that Philip was protecting her by saying that because she was running away from an abusive relationship. So they took her into an interview room and told her that if she wasn't cooperative, they would call CPS. So now she's scared that they're going to take away her children. So she's absolutely petrified. That's when she told them that her real name was Allie Smith. So she's making up even more names. They threatened to fingerprint her if she didn't give them her real identity. So she asked to see Philip. 
When they brought Philip into the room, she asked him what she should do because she was scared they would take the girls away from her, and he told her just to get a lawyer, and then they took him away again. A female officer was brought in and assured JC that she would be able to see her daughters again, but they really needed to know her real name. She said she couldn't, so Eddie went back to questioning Philip. He finally admitted to being the father of the kids, and when Eddie asked him why he lied, he said, I'll tell you if you let Alyssa in to hear. And Eddie was like, hell no. And out of nowhere, Philip confessed that years ago, he kidnapped and raped JC. He just confessed? Yeah. That's when the female officer came back into JC's room and told her that Philip had confessed to kidnapping and raping her, so she asked again for her name and what age she was when she was kidnapped. JC told her that she had been taken when she was 11 years old, and she is now 29. She's 29? Yep. But she couldn't say her name because she hadn't said her name in 18 years. So she wrote it down on a piece of paper, JC Lee Dugard along with her date of birth and the name of her mother. And she then told them that she wanted to see her mother. After that, they reunited her with her daughters and took everyone to the Concord Police Department. And she finally allowed herself to cry tears of joy. Before the police gave JC the phone to call her mother, they asked if she wanted to know anything. And she asked them if her mother and Carl had separated because as a child, she believed that Carl didn't like her and must have been relieved when she was kidnapped. So she couldn't imagine going back to a house with her mother and Carl, but they told her that they had split several years ago. Finally, they called Terry's home phone in Los Angeles, and Shayna, her younger sister, answered the phone and told them that her mother wasn't home. So they called Terry at work, and when they explained that her daughter had been found after 18 years, she didn't believe them. And as she was saying this wasn't a funny joke, JC said, Hi, Mom. Her mother just started screaming, she's been found, my daughter has been found. JC told her mom that she wanted her to meet her babies, meaning she had had babies in the past, but at this point her daughters were 11 and 14 years old. JC was crying so hard on the phone that the only thing she could get out of her mouth was come quick. The night before all of this happened, JC, who had long stopped looking to the moon to talk to her mother, looked up and saw a big, bright, full moon and thought about her mother and how all she wanted was to be with her again. And 120 miles away, Terry also looked at the same moon and said out loud, Okay, Jace, where are you? So they were connected through the moon the whole time. JC then had to break the truth to her daughters because they didn't know that she was their mother or that she had been kidnapped. When JC explained the story to them, they didn't seem very surprised. I don't even know how you begin to conceptualize their reality. I mean, it also, like, says, I mean, obviously this man is very evil and very just sick and mentally ill and, like, just everything like that, but it really goes to show you, like, what their life must have been to be, like, yeah, that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I mean, and they're 14 and 15? (laughs) No, 11 and 14. 11 and 14. Mm Mm-hmm. And they already are, like, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. Outside the police station, media outlets from around the country and the world were descending on the city, and it quickly became clear that JC and her daughters needed to be taken somewhere private and safe. So officers snuck them out the back of the station and in an unmarked car and took them to a local Hilton. They went there with just the clothes on their backs. 
But for JC's youngest daughter, there was something that was badly missing. It was a 10-gallon heated aquarium containing a hermit crab that she was raising and she wanted them back. So some of the officers at the Antioch crime scene retrieved the aquarium and put it on a food cart, covered it in towels from the hotel gym and wheeled it into the family's room. <laughs> so That's so awesome. I know. It was at the hotel later that JC finally saw her mother. And there was not a dry eye in the place. Goddamn, you know? Yeah, I don't know what to say about the emotion of that moment. I know. Philip and Nancy had plenty of court appearances, but weren't sentenced until June of 2011. Philip was sentenced to 436 years, and Nancy was given 36 years to life, and will be eligible for parole after 31. Wait, what? Like 2031? After 31 years. Oh. So... Not for a while, but still. Um, before the last court hearing, JC met with Nancy one more time because she wanted closure. At this short meeting, Nancy kept calling her Alyssa, but this time JC corrected her. Nancy asked if the girls ever asked about her and told JC that despite what Philip had done, she still loved him. Who cares? Yeah, like we, we not about you. We literally know you love him, you dumb piece of shit, because you kidnapped a girl for your husband and filmed 300 other little girls like we know yeah this is going okay on two decades <sighs> nobody cares that you love philip shove it up your ass nancy yep after that jc didn't see either of them again so that's good. good the testimony she gave to lock them away happened in front of a grand jury separate from nancy and philip however during their last court hearing she wrote a statement for terry her mother to read to the two of them it said to you, Philip, I say that I have always been a thing for your own amusement. I hated every second of every day for 18 years because of you and the sexual perversion you forced onto me. To you, Nancy, I have nothing to say. Both of you can save your apologies in empty words. For all the crimes you've committed, I hope you have as many sleepless nights as I did. JC started her foundation Just Ask Yourself to Care, or Jace, in 2010. Their mission is focused on, re on reunification of families that have gone through abductions and other traumas. In 2012, JC received an inspiration award for all of her hard work. And in her speech, she said, my hope is to be remembered by what I do and not what happened to me. The parole office had unsurprisingly been criticized for everything they could have done. It was discovered that from 1999 to 2007, Philip was supposed to have regular mental health assessments but that never happened. On four different occasions, 1999, 2004, 2005, and 2008, the California Parole Department suggested to the Parole Department in Nevada to release Philip from his parole. The parole board congratulated Eddie Santos on the job well done, but soon after that, Eddie had to move his family out of California because of all the threats he was receiving. So, not surprising. Yeah, gotta say, not surprising, guys. The state of California agreed to pay $20 million in settlement to JC. So that's good. Wait, um, did she sue them? Yeah. Oh. They got $20 million in settlement. So. I mean, how do you put a monetary value on that? No, I mean, she... How do you <laughs> like, even begin? Anything. But, you know, at least her and her children are set, set up for life. Yeah, for sure. She wants to change the concept of Stockholm Syndrome. She hates that people believe that she fell in love with Philip. She adapted to her circumstances to survive. She not one time had any compassion for Philip, and she hated him and Nancy the whole time. So, setting that record straight. 
And in 2014, it was announced that under the Elderly Parole Program in California, which states that prisoners 60 or older and have served at least 25 years will be eligible for parole hearings, which will make Philip eligible for a parole hearing in 2034. Explain that again. There's an elderly parole program in California that was passed, and it means that prisoners 60 or older that have served 25 years are eligible for parole hearings. So he just kind of got lucky with that, like... Ruling? Ruling. Um, but he, Which makes him eligible for requesting parole in 2034. But, I mean, hopefully he'll never be granted parole. Uh, but I guess I we'll... have to say that my faith in this process is stretched thin mm-hmm. due to a mountain of evidence. Yes. <laughs> he should be in jail for 436 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe we shouldn't let parolees who have more than a lifelong year term mm-hmm. be eligible for parole. Maybe. Maybe. Especially like violent criminals like this. Pedophiles. Pedophiles? Yeah. Like... I understand nonviolent drug offenders. Mm-hmm, for sure. I mean, that's a whole but, separate issue. you know, it's just like, what do we think? Some people can't be re- rehabilitated. No. And I have to say that pedophiles are probably multiple offenders mm-hmm. that are pedophiles. Yeah. Should not be under that umbrella. Like, no. they're not going to change. No, I think I, I, think I agree I'm with that. I'm pretty confident in that position. Uh-huh. And that's that on that. But JC has said that at this point in her life, she feels like life is too short for a moment of bitterness or rage. She refuses to let him have that. JC's mother said that she thinks that she has enough hate in her heart for the both of them. So <laughs> there's that. I can't blame her. No, I, I can't. I would either. totally be where she is. Yeah. But JC believes that she can face whatever life throws at her because she has been through the worst kind of hell already and survived. But she has gone through lots of therapy, which has helped a lot. And she also encourages therapy to everyone. And she said, what happened to me will always be a part of who I am, but I don't let that be the only thing that makes me who I am. I don't let those experiences or those people, meaning Philip and Nancy, define the relationships in my life now. When I do have something from the past pop into my head, I don't shy away from it either. It's important for me to acknowledge that thought or feeling and figure it out. So she's working on herself, which we love. That's awesome. She... That she benefited from therapy is doing well. Yeah, she's doing really well. And she has sent both of her daughters to college and has traveled the world and given talks at Yale and Harvard. And she's written two best-selling memoirs, one called Freedom, My Book of Firsts, and one called A Stolen Life. She loves tending to her garden and riding and caring for her horse, Cowboy. That's sweet. Yeah. Her daughters probably went to the best school that they could possibly go to with 20 mil. Oh, yeah. I mean, any school they... World class. Yeah, for sure. Going forward, she says her primary concern is to continue building up the Jace Foundation, which has helped or held workshops for hundreds of kidnappings, sexual assaults, and other trauma victims, as well as the law enforcement officers who are often the first responders to those cases. And that is the story of J.C. Lee Dugard. If you are interested in checking out the Jace Foundation, you can check it out at thejaycfoundation.org, and I will leave that linked in the description of this week's episode. But that is her story. Goddamn. I don't know what to say truly about this, but this is, yeah, just a bottomless hell that she went through. Yeah. But, you know, I'm so glad that she has come out of it and seems to be, you know, really She's like a really positive, like, bubbly woman. Yeah, and that's inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, her daughters seem to be doing great. Yeah. 
and you know they're financially set, set up yeah so just they can do whatever they want and that's how it should be yeah but this yeah. is a really long episode so let's get to the good let's thing let's wrap it up oh i uh, also meant to say that last week's episode i said was suggested by someone but i didn't know who that was um but she dm'd me and it was made by malia thanks malia thanks malia shout out yeah so let's get to our good thing what's your good thing uh, my good thing, which I might steal yours, is that the new season of Handmaid's Tale has come out, and we are currently in the process of watching it, and I'm gripped. We are definitely late to the party because it's been yep. out for a hot minute, but yep. I am also gripped. It is it is real good. Yeah, whatever I mean, Elizabeth Moss is doing, she needs to keep doing it. I'm, I'm, whatever she's buying, whatever she's selling, I'm buying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, my good thing is that we found a really nice coffee shop near our apartment and I really enjoyed it. And I'm going to go back there all the, all the time. Yeah, we did. It was sweet. And you know, it was just like good to change up the scenery. Yeah. Kind of felt like I was back in college. Yeah. You know, at like a library. <laughs> back to the good old days. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, what, two years ago, <laughs> excuse me, as I look at my watch I know. and as the beard, as the hairs on my beard gray. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if because I got pour over coffee and I don't know if there's more caffeine. I think in they that. put cocaine in it. They must have because I felt <laughs> caffeinated for like Forever. six hours. Yeah. <laughs> I was beaning. Well, I have a I had a delightful matcha latte, so that yeah. was great. It was and great. You finished it pretty quick. So. I always slurp those little bitches down. Yeah, They're really are, good. Yeah, you're a hoe for matcha lattes. I really am. But and, you know, can't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much for listening and for being here for a year. Hell yeah. Thank you. Let's let's keep it going. If you'd like to look at all the pictures that we post uh, of all the cases that we talk about, follow us on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share with us, send it to notodaypodcast or at gmail.com. Or if you have a case suggestion, we love those too. You can always DM me on Instagram. We have a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast. And... And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. 